am Kendra Winchester here with Samaya Nassim, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim the bookshelf and read the world. Today, we're talking about our discussion picks, The Parisian and Against the Loveless World. You can find a complete transcript of this episode on our website, readingwomenpodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Well, we are back for our second part of our uh, reading Palestine theme. And, you know, it's still summer and it's still very, very hot outside, which I feel like is our state of being until like September. Um, But we always talk about the weather and how that affects our ability to record. And I find that fascinating. I'll spare our listeners. But um, how are you holding up, Samaya? I'm fine. (laughs) I'm doing all right. (laughs) No comments because the heat is killing me. And I know it's so basic to talk about the weather, but um, that's the only thing that changes when you're staying at home all the time. You know, that's very true. That's very true. Um, I actually just made a cup of coffee for myself because I have the AC up so high I'm cold. So we've reached that stage of summer. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But if you are like me and you're cold, you can buy one of our new sweatshirts. Do you see that segue there? Amazing. It was amazing. Flawless. It was amazing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we have uh, new t-shirts, uh, tank tops, and sweatshirts available for our theme this year. We've never done a yearly theme, so we thought it'd be really cool to have a like a piece of merch to go with that. So I bought a maroon sweatshirt, which I learned that you should wash by itself first, or otherwise all of your spouse's white t-shirts will be turned pink. That was exciting. Um, So just as a pro tip there, if you're going to wash it, Um, but I love it. I think it's great. And um, all of my white t-shirts are now pink, but it's fine. And uh, also we have great t-shirts and tank tops, and we have a white version of the logo, and we have a full color version of the logo, so you get to pick your favorite option. Um, Many thanks to Vanessa Bradley for designing um, our new merch, and um, we're huge fans. Sounds amazing. Pink (laughs) t-shirts must be a good look. I actually like pink, so that is not a sarcastic comment. (laughs) <laughs> well, I think it's really funny because now Sam's dress shirts, uh, like, you know, he wears white t-shirts underneath them. And so now they're all pink t-shirts <laughs> that he wears underneath his dress shirts. <laughs> so funny. Oh my word. I am 31 years old and I still struggle to do the laundry. So here we are. <laughs> we also have our Patreon newsletter that goes out in the middle of the month. So or right about now, Ruth Ann, who is a most brilliant project manager for behind the scenes for Reading Women. She does our Patreon newsletter every month. And I really love uh, the books that she shares and her dog, Ted, who is this a cute little Westy old man kind of dog. And he's very grouchy and opinionated, but what for a child isn't. And uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. So if you want to check out our Patreon, which includes exclusive episodes and merch and all sorts of things, definitely go check it out. There'll be a link in our show notes. 
Now, we have two fantastic books to talk about today, uh, but before we jump in, I just wanted to add a little note uh, that in our first episode, we did discuss some language when discussing books about Palestine, so I would highly encourage you to go listen to that if you haven't already. And of course, this is just a introduction to the topic. We hope that our discussion today inspires you to go uh, do a lot of your own research regards to Palestine and what is going on right now. So, uh, Uh, We have some resources down in the show notes. Uh, We have a document that Samaya has put together that includes uh, websites to check out, people to follow, books to read, podcasts, documentaries, you name it. Uh, She has put together this wonderful document to give you resources there. We also have a blog post from this month's guest, Yara. She has a blog post about different books uh, by Palestinian authors that you should definitely go check out. And of course, um, we also have a link so you can contact your elected official, um, whether you're in the UK or the United States. So we've included all of those resources in the show notes, and we would highly encourage you to go check those out. And we'll be back with more from this episode of Reading Women after a word from our sponsor. The sponsor of this episode is Mubi, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, Mubi premieres a new film. From iconic directors to emerging talent, there's always something new to discover. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected, and it's like your own personal film festival, streaming anytime, anywhere. The thing I love most about Mubi is how they give me access to films from around the world from the comfort of my own living room. I don't have a cinema that plays films like this around where I live, and I am able to watch films from Turkey, Germany, Mexico, Japan, just by logging into Mubi, and they're all there at my fingertips. So I'm in the US, but Mubi is available in 195 countries. So wherever you are, there's always going to be something for you. You can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash readingwomen. That's Mubi.com slash readingwomen for a whole month of great cinema for free. Thanks so much to Mubi for sponsoring this episode of Reading Women. All right. So I think it's time to talk about the books. So you have our first discussion pick. Right. So we our first discussion pick is The Parisian by Isabella Hamad. And this is out from Grove in the U.S. and Jonathan Cape in the U.K. And this book looks at uh, a character named Midhat who is uh, going to... Paris or France, eventually to Paris, uh, in 1914, and he's going there to study medicine and then to go back eventually to Palestine to use the skills that he has learned. And uh, this is a sweeping historical novel that uh, is so fascinating. And I love that uh, Isabella Hamad has has tackled this project, which is a very high difficulty level because it is a very long book. And because it has so many different characters, but I feel like she does it so well. I really love that the book has such a you know wide range of time and that there's so much in this book because I didn't really want it to end, to be honest. Uh, I loved it that much. So I feel like it works really, really well. And I feel like if people can read like a gazillion page book about 
Russian people being sad when it's cold. I feel like, you know, like <laughs> we anyone could read this book if they could read that. So I I am overjoyed about this book. And so uh, <laughs> yeah, and I I just wanted to add that, you know, it is a lengthy book, but it's not overwritten. Like every word is so carefully selected and I feel like uh, and actually it's obvious that Hamad has carried out meticulous research um, and never feels like she's info dumping on the readers like it's always very organic in the way that she introduces these different topics within the book yeah I feel the same that you know the book is incredibly beautifully written and the characters are so complex and well-drawn and she also provides resources she has lists of characters so you can reference them and she also has a list of events in the back so you can follow the timeline if you want to know um, the timeline events around palestine in um more the first half of the 20th century and I really appreciated that because you know I would put the book down and go do things and come back and I would try to remember who was who and it was just very helpful that way I was also listening on audio so it was helpful in that sense as well um And so this book looks at the history of Palestine before the creation of the state of Israel. And I really appreciated that because I realized a big gap in my history knowledge is that time period. And uh, Palestine has such a beautiful, unique culture and history. And I wanted to learn more about that. Um, A a professor told me in a university to, uh, if you want to know about a time period, you need to read about the time period before and how they got there. And that was really helpful in this situation because I also wanted to know what is the history of Palestine in the first half of the 20th century. And this book is like a, a story version of that history. And she, you know, has all of these details in the back because this is a novel. So um, I really appreciated her bringing it back to real events. Yeah, and I think that uh, because of this long list of glossary that she's included, anyone can then go and do their own research and learn about this historical time period, which is so underrepresented in historical fiction particularly. And I actually also wanted to point out that a lot of people, well, uh, there's this propaganda that, you know, Palestine did not exist uh, before Israel was formed. But this book is basically showing you that, look, this nation existed. There were all these people who lived there and they had this vibrant culture. And so I love the way that this book is actually a testament to that, you know, that it captures Palestine as a thriving nation before the rise of Zionism and, you know, in before the years that led up to the Nakba. Um, And I mean, there are Palestinian elders who are older than the state of Israel today. So that is another fash that people should think about. Yeah, and the book also looks at the 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 complexity of the politics of different Arab nations at the time, and I really appreciated the way that she put, you know, Palestine's history in that context. And she incorporates all of this information throughout the story. So you're just like taking it in as part of the story because Midhat meets all sorts of um, folks from other regions around the Arab world and they have chats and like these, they sit in their like parlors of in, you know, in France and like have these discussions and you feel like you're just another member of 
you know, that group of Arab people talking about it. Like she brings you into that conversation in such an effective way, I should say, um, which I thought was really well done. Yeah. And I just quickly also want to add that, you know, one of the key events um, that eventually led to the Nakba is the Balfour Declaration in which Britain essentially like, you know, they gave support to Israel or to um, people to create the state of Israel. Like that decision did not belong to them. And so like there is this arrogance uh, in colonial powers where they just draw these borders that, you know, they don't take account of the indigenous people who actually live there. The same thing happened um, in India and Pakistan when the partition happened. So I think that this book really brilliantly illustrates the kind of catastrophe that eventually happens because of these arrogant decisions. Um, And yes, you're right. Like the way that we are introduced to Mithat's inner world is really uh, beautifully done. And it makes you feel like you're part of that scene that is happening. Um, And I also really appreciated the way that we follow Mithat's, you know, his life, you know, from being a young man to someone who grows older. And eventually, you know, like we see all of his experiences in the backdrop of the politics that is unfolding. And it was very fascinating to see that and to become intimate in, you know, understanding him as a person shaped by these circumstances. So Midhat struggles to find a place for himself throughout the book. And, you know, when he goes to France, he's taken in and just kind of really comes to love France. And he has this very romanticized idea of uh, European colonizers. And uh, he just kind of, you know, accepts it hook, line, and sinker and is really uh, sad when, you know, he has to go home. And then when he goes home, he stands out and they call him the Parisian. That's where the name of the book comes from. And uh, he kind of struggles to fit in back with his old life. And he struggles with his father, who just does not really like his son for who he is and just has all of these ideas. And this is something that his character changes over the course of time as we watch him try to figure out who he is and how he sees himself versus um, the realities of his life. And it's just this constant struggle in his mind and in his inner world. Yeah. And, you know, I think that uh, what you mentioned, that he romanticizes Europe and um, that he's a bit of an idealist and he's a little disillusioned. And I think um, this theme of the fractured identity is very central to the book. Um, One of the turning points for Mithahid that actually contributes to his fractured sense of self and identity happens very early in the novel. And this is kind of a minor spoiler, um, but it happens very early in the book. So he discovers that his host in France, Dr. Molyneux, is examining him like a specimen. And this is when he is kind of shocked into becoming aware of his own otherness, you know, which is created by his European counterparts. He realizes that all of the intellectual conversations that happen over dinner and all the moments when he felt like he was becoming a Parisian himself 
were nothing but people taking an interest in him because he's an outsider. And to them, he always will be. They don't really accept him um, as part of their community. And so Mithat's fractured identity contributes, you know, eventually contributes a lot to his mental health struggle when he returns to Palestine and is once again, you know, like you said, he's seen once again as an outsider just because of the way his personal style has evolved to reflect French style and, you know, because of his association with France. So in becoming the Parisian, Mithat actually loses a firm sense of belonging in his own community in Palestine and his identity then becomes fractured. Um, And I think it's very, it's an interesting way of looking at uh, cross-cultural identity especially at this time when there's so much shift happening in politics and culture, because your sense of belonging to a group can really get affected if you in turn are not, are not accepted. So that is what we kind of see with Midhat. It's really well written to see how he tries to find a sweet spot for himself to try to figure out what he wants to do. His dad has very opinionated uh, things about his son and what his son should be doing and just all sorts of things that uh, he's hit with immediately when he goes home. And there's just so much going on with that as he's trying to, he doesn't really have any time to process any of this. And so that's something that I found really compelling to read. Uh, it's really interesting that his his grandmother plays a huge role in his life and trying to help him settle back into Palestinian culture in his town. And uh, she's really fighting for him, but he just doesn't see that sometimes. And um, it's just very like, woe is me. Like, what have I gotten myself into? And she's like, dude, shape up. Like, I'm going to help you, but you need to do your part. And it's like a very grandmotherly thing to do. And I really appreciated the characters in Midhat's life that kind of do that for him. Yeah. And I feel like both of the novels that we're discussing today, they have these grandmother figures who are such a central, who play such a central role in the character's life. And um, I really love that because what we see in Midhat is this struggle to become an individual, but then there's also the community and family obligations that kind of pull him in different directions. Um, and so overall, I think it's a very fascinating narrative that beautifully balances, you know, him being a young man and having all these experiences in the backdrop of the politics that is unfolding. And so we really get to see him intimately, but also the region um, is something that we get to understand. So I really liked that balance in the book. Um, There's this one quote that I read that is a beautiful snapshot of what we've been talking about. And there aren't spoilers in this quote. Um, You just know that uh, Mitata is talking to a French man um, after he has gone back home to Palestine. And so um, Midhat says, when I look at my life, I see a whole list of mistakes, lovely, beautiful mistakes. I wouldn't change them. One thing I would change is the mistake I made about your country. I had no idea about France, you know. I had a kind of a fantasy of virtue that I would change, or maybe, maybe that is just the only thing I would have changed. The other things, it was all just out of my hands. And that is a perfect quote to describe Matat as a character of the way that he sees his life. And this particular section of the book 
had a lot of introspection of his own life and a lot has happened in his life by the time we get to this point in the book and I feel like the way that he interacts with this French man speaks to who he is post his experience in France and uh, it's just an incredible section. I reread it several times just because it was so beautifully written and it really describes who our protagonist is as a character. Yeah. And I think uh, Isabella Hamad does that really well in the book in general, where she creates these moments that are very simple or brief, you know, in in the time that they happen, but they have a huge impact on his life. So that small moment is actually a lot bigger than what it seems. And yeah, I mean, she just expresses that really beautifully in this book. And one of the things that I really enjoyed in the book is how Isabella Hamad uh, integrates French and Arabic words into the text, and she just has them in the text, and you can typically tell what they mean by the context, And but it adds to um, Midhat's own cultural feelings of being many things at the same time. Yeah, and I actually really love multilingual novels or, you know, books where you do have that code switching that happens. Um, and I think it's very fascinating and reflective um, of the individual experience um, in spaces where there are overla- overlaps of cultures and languages. So um, I might be wrong about this, but earlier in the book, Amidat is, is new in France. And although he knows French, he's not perfectly fluent. So there are these phrases spoken by French characters in the middle of conversation that they're having that are written in French in the book. And I think these are the phrases that Midas himself does not fully understand. So you as a reader, if you don't understand French, you're kind of experiencing that with him. I don't know if I noticed it correctly, but the appearance of the French phrases actually then become more infrequent as he becomes more fluent. Um, And I actually also loved that there were Arabic phrases that are included. It reminded me of growing up in Saudi Arabia. uh, And we talked about this earlier, Kendra, before we recorded, you know, and I didn't always feel like I had access to the language that was being spoken around me because I don't fully understand Arabic. Um, And so to me, it's important to retain words um, and not translate everything because it's a more realistic representation of the kind of world we live in. You know, we have multilingual societies where someone may not always know what is being spoken around them. And so I felt like that's what Isabella Hamad was kind of trying to represent in this book. So that is The Parisian by Isabella Hamad, and that is out from Grove in the U.S. and Jonathan Cape in the U.K. And Samaya, you have our next discussion pick. Our next discussion pick is Against the Loveless World by Susan Abulhawa. Um, This was published by Atria in the U.S. and Bloomsbury in India. So one of the things I briefly talked about in our first episode for this theme is that Nahar is a revolutionary character who refuses to conform to that narrative of victimhood. Um, Aside from the colonial violence and displacement, she survives other forms of oppression um, that she faces because she's a woman. And one of this is, you know, the patriarchy and misogyny in Kuwait and the violence that she endures when she gets involved in sex work in order to survive. Um, I think, Kendra, you had some observations about Nahar's survival and her family's survival in general. Yes. One of the things that is really communicated so well in this book is that um, Nahar is one of 
you know, she's about the third generation of women who has had to flee their home. And with that repetition of fleeing your home, uh, first in Palestine and then in other countries as refugees, and, you know, it's other countries do not treat the Palestinians well either. And so they're having to move countries from one to another. And that is, you know, this multi-generational uh, kind of trauma that affects the entire family, but they are still very resilient. And this is how they survive. In fact, one of after one of these events, um, Nahar thinks of her grandmother and her mother like they're not as shocked by the experience because this is one of the first times that she's had to flee her home as an adult. And then she remembers that her mom and her grandmother have already done this at least once. It was it was more something they were prepared for while she hadn't quite experienced that in the same way that they had up until that point. And that really solidified this in my mind for me that this is, you know, this kind of displacement and being a refugee affects so many different generations of women, um, and not just once, but repeatedly. Yeah. And I actually wanted to tie this particular theme of survival and resilience back to our previous discussion pick, the Parisian, and how we don't see that aspect of, you know, Palestinian struggle in that book because they don't have to, you know, be resilient. They don't have to be strong in that way. But novels or books that are, you know, documenting a time after the Nakba or the catastrophe that happened in 1948 often illustrate the way that Palestinians have to become resilient and strong to actually, you know, resist the colonization that they face. Yeah. And I always had this feeling of unsettledness in the novel that reflects how Nahar is having to move from place to place. Like you don't, in the book, you never feel like you've settled into a location in the novel. You, you always have this agitated feeling of possibly having to move at a moment's notice. And that is in fact what Nahar and her family are feeling at that time. And I thought that was so brilliant because I didn't realize why I felt so unsettled until I realized like that was something that the author had built into the book. And that was just so skillfully done throughout the novel. Yeah, and I actually want to tie this back to um, the structure of the novel, because the only time you know that Nahar is in one place is when she is in the cube, which is the Israeli prison, you know, this highly technologically advanced prison that she is in. And we get we have these alternate sections um where the novel actually keeps going back to Nahar in the future when she's in this prison. And that's the only time that you really see her really reflecting back or, you know, having the time to like think back on what's happened. By the rest of the book, there's a lot of like this movement or tension in the rest of the book. And I really loved the structure of, of this novel because with every section where, you know, we go back to Nahar in the cube, the title of that section is actually approaching the cube from a different angle. So from a different um, side, so the east or the west and all of this. So effectively, as the novel progresses, the structure of the cube, in my mind as a reader anyway, was basically being built. And she was like, you know, imprisoned within it. So the walls were kind of being built up as the novel progresses and as the events that eventually lead to her being imprisoned happen in the book. Does that make sense? Like that's basically 
how I kind of saw the structure within the the novel um, and the alternative timelines that we have. Yeah, yeah, because each section is also named after where she is in the past as she's telling you her story. And so we have that movement, but then you know that she's in stasis in the cube and they just parallel beautifully. And you don't really, I didn't realize what she was doing until after the fact, which is always a sign of like that subtle skill there of a novelist. So we've talked about how her family is resilient and, and, in different ways. And one of the ways that I really love the way that the author fleshed out was later in the book, uh, Nahar finds a man who she loves and, uh, they have this beautiful intimacy on so many different levels, uh, particularly on an emotional and psychological level. And they are reading books together. And so they are reading, um, you know, Baldwin's The Fire Next Time, which is where the title comes from, Against the Loveless World, and that they resist their oppressors, they resist against the loveless world from a foundation of love, and what that means to them. And they have this conversation in the book that I just really appreciated kind of, you know, how the author lets us sit in on this conversation. Um, And... I thought that was just so well described the way that they talk about their resistance and, you know, the way that they approach that through this foundation of love. And I thought that was such a a beautiful way to describe it and to also have this conversation between them that illustrates the kind of intimacy they have together. Yeah. And I think that conversation when they're discussing Baldwin is one of the most intimate sections of the book for me. I really loved the love between them and the way that it grows and blossoms. Um, And for me, like seeing Nahar kind of go through all of these struggles and all of the violence, um, you know, before, which makes her, you know, distrustful towards men. um, And then kind of seeing her go to Palestine and then meeting this man kind of, you know, kind of the, her journey of healing comes full circle in a way because she goes to Palestine and I really loved that kind of a representation in her character where uh, being back in the homeland completes her as a person on so many levels. Um, And she really feels connected and also heals uh, from within herself after all of the turbulent times that she'd faced. So now that Nahar is in Palestine and she is healing as a person, there's also other things that are happening Um, that she is experiencing and witnessing. And um, what we see is the disproportionate violence that is experienced by Palestinians. You know, often when people talk about Palestine, they incorrectly call it a conflict. Uh, The word conflict assumes that Israel and Palestine are equals fighting against each other. But the reality is the exact opposite. And this is something that becomes very clear in the novel. Um, You have Israel, which has one of the most powerful armies, and they have nuclear weapons, whereas Palestinians don't have much to defend themselves. In the novel, Nahar is imprisoned in the cube, which I mentioned earlier. And this is a technological marvel because it's almost completely automated. Meanwhile, the characters who resist against the occupation and colonization have to rely on their wits and ingenuity. So that is one observation that I had regarding how the novel actually broadly speaks of what's actually happening in Palestine by representing the scale of uh, arms that the 
you know, that Israel has. And I think that is a great examples of that are, you know, when Nahar is in the cube, like she has these wrist bracelets that she is required to like put on the wall and then they kind of lock into place. And that way the guard comes in and, and she's restrained and it's like automated, like you said. And then their kind of resistance though that they do involves like just trying to water their almond trees, which I found a fascinating part of how they were very crafty in figuring out how to get water to their almond trees because they're you know, the government was restricting their water and wouldn't let them water their almond trees. So they figured out how to get tubes from someone else. And like, anyway, it's beautifully described. And obviously I'm not describing it very well, but the way that this ingenuity happens and all the different processes that they do to water these almond trees plays a huge role in the book. And um, I just thought that was very clever. And that's kind of, that's what you're looking at is like this shiny, sterling, like, technology versus people using plastic tubes to water their almond trees. Yeah. And when Nahar is in Palestine, she actually becomes part of this small resistance group. Um, and this group of rebels is actually just a group of friends who want to fight back against the injustices that their community faces. Um, and what Nahar's point of view shows us is the various ways that Palestinians use whatever they have at hand to resist colonization. Um, the, the novel's main timeline is actually set, I think, in the early 2000s when internet and email are very new and Palestinians are actually coming to realize how they can use the internet to their advantage, to organize their rebellion and to research. Um, it's been a couple of decades since this story was set, but this is still the reality that social media and online activism is the biggest advantage that Palestinians have and is how they resist colonization as compared to this military that is, you know, occupying them. So in the book, uh, we also see a lot of settler colonial violence uh, and there are several different instances and different kinds of this. And so we see that through all of these different examples. One of those that, that I noticed is uh, that at any moment, soldiers would come in and can search your house. And they don't just search your house. They, like, destroy your house as they're searching. And the home is such a intimate and kind of almost sacred space for a family. Like, that's, your, that's the physical representation of who you are and where you are. And disrupting that continuously is just such a violent act on a psychological level that something that just I noticed repeatedly happening over and over in a book, how, you know, your space could be invaded at any time for no apparent reason. And then also during those searches, they often can be very violent towards the people whose houses they're searching. And so that happens several points in the book when soldiers come in searching for, um, people for a wide range of random reasons, but um, that's just something that really hit really hard is that you could never settle into your home because it could be invaded at any point. Yeah, and this is the reason I wanted to, you know, illustrate um, that while this may be a work of fiction, it actually represents these real events that Palestinians continue to face. And so the event that I selected that we see in the book is the violence committed against olive trees. So when we talk about the intersectionality of the Palestinian struggle, at one point in the novel, Nahar is helping out at the olive group and 
uh, at the time of harvest, when, when all of these Palestinians who are working in the fields, they are violently attacked by armed forces and settlers who are protecting, who are protected by the armed forces. And the olive trees are actually set on fire. This results in not only the loss of trees, but also life in the book. The irony is that Israel actually claims they've brought bloom to the desert, but in reality, they ration the water Palestinians get, which is insufficient for irrigation and farming. And Israel has actually destroyed more than a million olive trees since 1967. And olive farming is actually one of the main sources of the Palestinian economy. So this is a direct attack on Palestinian livelihood, other than the fact that it's basically a huge crime against nature. I also wanted to add that the olive tree is a universally acknowledged and celebrated symbol of peace, and it's also a symbol of Palestinian national pride. I think this is why Israel's attacks on olive groves, uh, because they don't want peace. And by destroying olive trees, they destroy Palestinian heritage, history, and economy all at once. Um, and of course, this contributes directly to their colonial project. Um, I was on Twitter earlier, and someone reported that, again, today they uprooted a lot of olive trees that had been planted for centuries. So that is basically what's happening as we speak. So that was our discussion pick, Against the Loveless World by Susan Abelhawa, published by Atria in the U.S. and Bloomsbury in India. So we, of course, there are more and more books that uh, are on this topic or written by Palestinian writers. Um, so Samaya, what are your picks for further reading? So my first selection for further reading is Minor Detail by Adania Shibley. This was published by Fitzcarraldo Editions and it's available in all formats. Um, the novel was actually translated by Elizabeth Jacket from the Arabic it's a powerful narrative, and I don't think I've read anything like it. Um, so the book is actually divided into two sections. Um, in this first section, we follow this distanced third-person perspective of an Israeli commander in the Negev desert in 1949, which is a year after the Nakba, or the catastrophe, um, which led to the displacement of over 700,000 Palestinians. And so he basically leads a troop of soldiers who brutally capture and rape a Palestinian girl. So this book has content warnings for that. Um, the second section takes place many decades later, and it's told from the intimate first-person perspective of a Palestinian woman who becomes obsessed with this horrible incident that happened in 1949, which, you know, is a minor detailed detail compared to the atrocities that were committed at that time and after that. Um, the way that the two sections run parallel to each other was really fascinating to read. Um, and I think the, the translation was brilliant because the narrative flowed so seamlessly. And I think that um, a lot of effort was put in by Elizabeth Jacket to into this translation because the structure of the novel actually supports um, the themes within the book. So that actually came through in the translation, which I'm sure was very difficult to do. Um, so yeah, that was Minor Detail by Adania Shibley. So my second pick for further reading is a nonfiction title called Golda Slept Here by Suad Amiri, which was published by Women Unlimited in India. Um, this work of nonfiction is translated by Emin Haddad. Um, in this book, 
Amiri uses prose and poetry to document the experiences of a few Palestinian families, including her own family. And she creates this strong sense of Palestinian history, but also the loss and the pain of being displaced by Israel's colonial violence. One of the sections in this book is about Andoni Baramki, the first Palestinian architect who built the home of his dreams, but it was taken away uh, by Israel when Palestinians were forced to leave. He returns years later because he never forgets his home, which he calls his beloved, um, when the property is no longer being used by Israel. But he's actually denied the right to claim, reclaim his home because of the absurd absentee property law, which states that properties will be confiscated if the Palestinian owner is absent. So in this book, you see that he literally stands in front of the judge and is told that he's an absentee and hence he cannot get his house back, which is bizarre. Uh, but it's the reality that's happening in Palestine. There are also other experiences captured in the book, um, including the life and activism of Huda al-Imam, a Palestinian woman who devotes her life to resisting colonization. It was a fascinating work overall because aside from presenting the landscape of Palestinian experience, the, no the nonfiction work also reveals the absurdities of Israeli law. So that was Golda Slept Here by Swad Amiri. So I chose two books um, by members of the Palestinian diaspora. And the first is uh, The Beauty of Your Face by Sahar Mustafa, which we've talked about a lot yeah. already. So uh, I feel like, you know, you all know that it's great and, you know, definitely go check it out. And right now it's shortlisted for um, a Palestine Book Award. So how cool is that? Uh, so this book is about a woman who is a principal at an all-girls Muslim school, and there is a uh, shooter who has come on the premises, and then you have flashbacks to her childhood when her sister disappeared. And it's really like a family look at uh, Palestinian immigrants who have moved to the U.S. and what their experiences are like there. So definitely go check that one out, as well as You Exist Too Much by Zaina Arafat. Now, Zaina Arafat's work is really fascinating because it's about a queer Palestinian woman who is the daughter of a Palestinian refugee who's gone to America. And so she has a very tumultuous relationship with her mom. And the book opens actually when our protagonist is back in Palestine and someone, a man, uh, yells at her for showing too much skin. And then we jump back to the present where she is going to this rehab center for love addiction. This book is such a fascinating look at this very unlikable character and the way that she has processed her queerness, her Palestinian identity, um, her American identity, and there's so many different things. And I just became fascinated by the way that Zaina Arafat has written this character and what is love addiction and how has that played such a huge role in this character's life? What does that mean? I think both of these books really illustrate the long-term effects of being Palestinian-American and having had to move away from your own country and how that has a, an effect on generations to come. And uh, that's something that I think is really reflected in both of these books, which are both very different, but deal with that topic, um, but in their own ways. Uh, so that's our theme on reading Palestine. Um, Samaya, where can people find you about the internet? 
you can find me on Instagram where my handle is at Books. That is also the handle for my clubhouse where I host rooms about books and all things literary. And that's it. That's where you can find me. And you all can find me at KD Winchester on all of the social media. Um, and that's our show. Many thanks to our patrons for making this podcast possible. This episode was produced and edited by me, Kendra Winchester, and it has music by Mickey Saito with Isaac Green. Join us next time when Kendra and Sashi talk about books about nature. In the meantime, you can find Reading Women on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. Thank you so much for listening. 